This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they are ensuring the long life of my work. So the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days are Adam, Cor Divinis, Sam, Wiebke, J.R., Bain Athane, Chris, Chris C., Stuart, Ian, Jpeth, Mick, and Tobias. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening who wants to join their number, follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Stephen Bradford Long, and you get extra content every single week. If you find yourself just craving Stephen Bradford Long content that you just want to shove into your veins because you're going through withdrawal, then uh, do please go to Patreon. The Sacred Tension show is now bi-weekly. Um, this is because I am starting a new career and my workload has approximately tripled. So in order to make some, uh, in order to allow some margin for myself, the Sacred Tension main show is now every other week instead of weekly. So if you need that weekly content, then go to Patreon and you can get my Uh, weekly Patreon show, House of Heretics, with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, Timothy McPherson, and we talk about uh, current events, philosophy, religion, all kinds of interesting things from our overlapping but slightly divergent perspectives. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome David Livingston Smith to the show. David, welcome. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, so tell us some about who you are and what you do. Oh, good gracious me. Well, I'm a philosopher, and I teach philosophy at the University of New England in Maine. Um, And I write books. I write books and articles. So primarily for the last... 17 years or so, I've been working on the phenomenon of dehumanization. I've written three books on that topic, the most recent of which, uh, Making Monsters, was published in 2021. Uh, I'm working on a an idea for a new book now, which won't be about humanization. It'll be about what Sigmund Freud has to teach us about ourselves. And that connects to My previous career, before I transitioned to philosophy, I was a psychotherapist and uh, a Freud scholar, and I wrote on psychoanalysis and related topics. So that's really what I do. It's amazing. At least part of what I do. (laughs) That's fabulous. So I have to say that I first encountered you in 2021 when your book Making Monsters came out and you were doing some publicity for it. And I watched your interview on David Pakman and who is great, by the way, everyone should go watch David Pakman. He's really cool. But he, in your interview with him, he asked you what you thought about our tendency 
right now to dehumanize, to use dehumanizing language like monster and ghoul and scum to describe people who are our political enemies to, you know, the, the habit that people on the right and on the left have of dehumanizing, using dehumanizing language to describe people who are politically not like them. And your answer was so convicting for me, if I may use some of my old evangelical Christian language. Hmm. It so convicted me that to just never, ever use dehumanizing language ever again. Like, I, it was such a profound sting to my conscience hmm. in a good way that I, like, from that interview on, I just committed myself to never, ever call a Republican a monster or someone who opposes LGBT rights a monster. So let's start there. Why is it important for us to never— why, why does dehumanizing language and why do the words we use matter? Why should we care about using words like monster to describe people who are ideologically not like us? Well, the use of, of language like that, um, especially when it is sincere, that is when people actually do think of others as monsters, has a function, and that, that function is to override or to disable uh, our very natural inhibitions against harming other human beings. So it's, it's kind of a way of short-circuiting. After all, think of it for a moment. Um, monsters, in the sense of the monsters of horror, and that's the kind of sense that that kind of discourse is eliciting, uh, deserve no charity. Um, nothing is too bad for dealing with them. They are embodiments of evil. They are the enemies of all that is good. And therefore, they must be silenced or destroyed or segregated or incarcerated. And those are terrible things. So if we look at the history of human violence, when a, particularly authoritarian leaders, um, now these, these may be politicians, but they may be uh, religious leaders and, and others in positions that we grant authority to, nowadays it could be celebrities. And it's certainly science has done its fair share of this. When they get us to think of others as subhuman entities, particularly in the most toxic form of dehumanization, as monstrous or demonic entities, then that makes us capable of committing acts of atrocity, which would otherwise be extraordinarily difficult psychologically to perform. So dehumanizing rhetoric is just dangerous. And of course, it's also false because monsters are fictional. There aren't any monsters. I'm Jewish. I can say this. Hitler was not a monster. Hitler was a human being. And when we when we characterize those who we disapprove of as monstrous, 
it's just it's a way of dehumanizing them actually it's it's a way of creating a kind of moral distance it's a way of asserting they are nothing like us and that's the absolute wrong path to take what these people show us is what human beings and only human beings are capable of a lot of people in my audience will be familiar with the new contrapoints video who just came that just came out contrapoints is a really popular mm, I, I love contrapoints yeah. but i haven't seen the new one <clears throat> it's interesting it's really interesting so she brings up the case of anita bryant in her latest video who demonized and dehumanized and rallied american forces against gay people and then a lot of gay people did what I like to call revenge dehumanization <laughs> against, mm. against her, revenge dehumanization. And it sounds like what you're saying is to maybe different degrees, both the initial dehumanization and revenge dehumanization are wrong, that, that both can lead us into a morally dangerous place, an ethically dangerous place. But I can hear the the reaction in my head being something along the lines of, well, what else do we call someone like Anita Bryant? What language can be used to describe someone who has hurt our community so profoundly? Oh, right? there, there, but there's a lot available, right? How about destructive, mm. uh, persecutory, mistaken, um, hateful. Mm. I mean, there, there, there's, there are a lot of ways of engaging in moral disapproval without resorting to dehumanization. Mm. Uh, now, I, I have, I, to my mind, and the first stop needs to be a recognition that, however toxic someone's beliefs are, there's some reason why they have those beliefs. There are some set of experiences that they've had, which leads them to, to these awful ways of looking at other people. And what I attempt to do in direct engagement with people is to be curious. Uh, I want to know how they got to where they are. And I need to do that in a spirit of openness. Now, if, if the person is threatening violence, then, of course, that's not possible. But my, my view is that we should be trying to change minds. And just calling people names doesn't do that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, this is something that I have been uh, railing about and probably driving my audience to, uh, to uh, their limits with. And actually, I know, I know that I have been driving some of my audience to their limits with because I hear from them that we just have to relentlessly humanize each other. Yeah. Relentlessly. We have to make a practice of it. It, it has mm -hmm. to be a spiritual practice of humanizing our fellow human beings, no matter how morally dangerous mm -hmm. and unethical their ideas or behavior might be. Mm -hmm. And what what are the specific dangers that have or or let me let me 
put it this way. What benefit is there psychologically, so you're a former psychologist, what benefit is there psychologically to us, what benefit is there to, say, a gay person living in the South, as I did, as I have my entire life, what benefit is there to that person to maybe, let's say, the young trans kid growing up or the, or the trans young adult who is living in Alabama and just going through a horrific time? Or, you know, I, I grew up in the evangelical world in the 2000s and 2010s uh, when there was a ton of anti-gay stuff going on, especially in the 2000s. So why is it helpful to that person to not monsterize, demonize those who are persecuting them? What, what benefit or psychological benefit is there for them? And again, I'm just hearing the, I'm hearing the voice of my audience in my head being like, we expect this. Are, we are expecting this this what seems to a lot of people an enormous ask of a persecuted minority to do the to be to do the big thing to do the the noble thing when maybe they don't have the energy to do that what's your response to that and what what benefit is there psychologically for people to do this i don't know if there is a psychological benefit except the benefit of truthfulness and the possibility uh however in some situations remote, of changing minds. But, you know, the situation with threatened and marginalized communities is a little, is more than a little different than the inverse, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, people may need to think of their, their um, persecutors in, in a dehumanizing manner just to stay sane yeah. in situations of, of intense threat. Mm. And I'm a big believer in, you know, whatever gets you through the night, as long as you're not harming people. So mm. I wouldn't, in cases like that, I wouldn't presume to even suggest the way a person should respond. And But the rest of us who do care, I certainly do. I, by the way, grew up in the Deep South uh, a long time ago, um, in the 50s and 60s, where it was even more raw mm. than, than it is now. Those of us who do care need to first and foremost be concerned with protections for people. Right? We, can't, we can't legislate how people think, uh, but we need to keep people safe. Absolutely. No, and I, I appreciate that a lot. So let's talk about your article called Trans Demonic. Mm. Um, let me pull it up here real fast. It's on your sub stack. Maybe, yeah, maybe it'll remind me what's in it. Well, so you you are just pointing out and commenting in this article on the ways that the right in this country are dehumanizing trans people in really frightening ways. So you point to the words of Webster Barnaby, who is a congressman in Florida, and 
Uh, I will read his words here and uh, uh, forewarning everyone, they're pretty gross. Here are uh, Webster Barnaby's words. There is so much darkness in our world today, so much evil in our world today, and so many people who are afraid to address the evil. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, and all of your demons and all of your imps who parade before us. That's right. I call you demons and imps who parade before us and pretend that you are a part of this world. So I'm saying my righteous indignation is stirred. I am sick and tired of this. I'm not going to put up with it. You can test me and try to take me on, but I promise you I will win every time. Let's all vote up this bill. And he uh, he also describes trans people this way. It's like we have mutants living among us on planet Earth, he intoned, adding, We have people that live among us today on planet Earth that are happy to displace themselves as if they were mutants from another planet. This is the planet Earth where God created men, male, and women, female. I'm a proud Christian conservative Republican. I'm not on the fence. Right, and then and then came that, that larger quote, that I read earlier where he directly associates trans people with the demonic, with demons and imps and so on. Mm. So this is a clear-cut example of demonization and the way Mm. powerful people are are demonizing the trans community. Mm -hmm. That's right. How do we respond to this? What's what is what 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 do we do where, you know, sweeping, you know, there are people like Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh. I listen to both of them, by the way, because I find it important to keep up with what they're saying. So it's like taking my medicine every week where I (laughs) I listen to these people um, to see what, you know, my conservative friends are are, uh, ingesting. Mm. And the dehumanizing language that they use on a regular basis against trans people in particular mm-hmm. is very, very disturbing. So I guess I guess my question is, how do we respond to such widespread dehumanization? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, and certainly one way to respond is for all of us to do what we can to keep dangerous people um, in check. And uh, and not only out of the public eye, but more importantly, to do all that we can to prevent them from being in positions of power and influence. And so if we place this in historical context, and then maybe I'll go into some of the what I think are the psychological dynamics. Please do. Yeah. Of, of this. So um, historically speaking, Here's a fact about dehumanization. Well, here's a couple of facts. First, virtually any genocide that you might consider has involved dehumanization of by the perpetrators of their victims. Second, there are actually three points. The victims are almost always the most marginalized, the most vulnerable members of the community. 
So we can go again and again and again and again. And look at this, for instance, after the failure of reconstruction, the late 19th century, black men were in, in the South primarily represented as demonic monstrous beings. And that went hand in hand with the lynching epidemic that extended well, well into the 20th century, which were almost unbelievably gruesome. So people get incorrect ideas from the movies and from TV, because actually, if the facts about lynching were cinematically portrayed accurately, it, it, the movie would not be a hit. It would right? be worse than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Oh, yes. Way worse. Yeah. This involves dismemberment, people being forced to eat parts of their bodies, uh, uh, people being burned to death, mutilated, castrated. So there were, depending upon what the time boundaries were considering, let's say four, 4,000, around 4,500 of these events. They were public events. Men, women, and children attended. The media was on hand to report. It was, frankly, hideous. Now, African-Americans were certainly amongst the most marginalized members of the United States citizenry. In, in that respect, they were very vulnerable, very weak. But in the propaganda that went with lynching, they are represented as formidable, terrifying beings. Similarly, uh, the, the Holocaust, right? Nazi propaganda represented Jews, not simply as what they were, which was less than 1% of the population, eking out a fairly marginal existence. They were monsters. They were embodiments of evil. They were they controlled the world. And we still see this in, in white supremacist uh, anti-Semitic literature. Um, so I, I could easily reel off half a dozen other examples, but you get the point. So there's a cruel paradox. Here, that the weakest, the most debased are represented as the most powerful and the most dangerous. Mm, mm -hmm. Now, sometimes this these characterizations are um, promoted cynically by people who simply want to manipulate others. So, uh, you know, the... Uh, the Websters of the world uh, may not, he may not believe what he's saying, but and he may be making a pitch to those whom he wants to influence, those who he knows this will resonate with. And this sort of stuff, by the way, resonates very readily, even in the hearts of good people, mm. because fear is a powerful drug. Mm. We respond to fear. We respond to fear much more readily than we respond to love or to compassion. And I'll, I'll get to this in a moment. The persecuted population as monsters, as demons, are indeed feared. It, it might sound very strange, 
but it's but it's true. Okay, so some people do this cynically, others actually believe it. Right? So this this guy in Florida, he he might actually believe it. I suspect he does. Um now, what's going on there? Like, how could anyone? Right, let me start that a little bit differently. I can certainly understand why conservative Christians might morally object to sexual minorities and gender minorities. That doesn't mean I agree with them, but I can extend myself imaginatively into their framework. I mean, I Me too. I grew yeah. up with people like that. Same. Um, so I get that, but it's much harder to understand how these folks could really literally think of trans people or gay people as evil, as satanic, as dangerous. I mean, it, it seems to make no sense. So that calls for a deeper analysis of what's going on. Now, very generally speaking, and we could go into this because we find it in attitudes towards disabled people, particularly cognitively disabled people. We find it in, in connection to racialized people. Uh, unfortunately, these processes are very widespread um, so, look, human beings, all of us, including you and me, have a disposition, a tendency to organize the world around us neatly into boxes. And this tendency in, in the psychological literature is called psychological essentialism. There's no need for me to go into the details of this, at least not at this point. But here's here's the idea that... There are different kinds of things in the world, and they are rigidly bounded and separated from one another. Uh, now, the world isn't like that. <laughs> Charles Darwin taught us that. It's just not like that. So when you try and impose these structures on the world, there are always things that don't fit in. Now, to the degree that people are invested in this kind of framework, this kind of essentialistic framework, they experience those things, including those people that don't fit into the boxes, that seem to transgress boundaries, as profoundly threatening. It, in the minds of those who are threatened, they transgress, they undermine the natural order. And if this is fed by religious tendencies, as we find with fundamentalist editions of Christianity, that's in that's undermining God's order. Right? This is an affront to God. That that is exactly the experience that I had when I was coming out of the closet, where the way I describe it is it's almost like I was a threat to the DNA of the universe. It's exactly like, perfect. It's like yeah. I was unwrap my existence because there is this kind of heavenly alchemy, this mm -hmm. this kind of platonic divine alchemy of one man and one woman coming together in a sexual union, and that if mm -hmm. that 
gets disrupted, then it's almost like I'm injecting the DNA of something bad, something wrong, and like corrupting that divine yeah. DNA that starts to unravel the, the created right. order. I, I heard homosexuality described as an act of uncreation. An act of oh, yes, un yes. unraveling, unfurling the created order. So that's exactly the experience that I had. Yeah, we, we find this in all these domains. Uh, to the degree that people are committed to these sharp boundaries, and you know, the 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 Genesis story for one invites that exactly right. Yep. Um, and that account of the creation <laughs> is false. Right, whatever you want to say about it, it is false. Uh, that's not how species came about. That's not how the world is. The world is a much more interesting and um, tangled place than many people would like to believe. So they become very, very threatened. They become very frightened. I call this metaphysical threat mm. when they encounter things that don't fit in. So these people who say these awful things and enact these awful acts because now all over the country uh queer and 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 trans people are under threat i mean not just name calling but actual threat yes their persecutors are terrified of them that's a i think that's a fact um now how we respond to that we could we might respond in a variety of different ways but we that's something, if we want to understand the phenomenon, I think that to intervene in anything, we should understand it. We should we should pop the hood and yeah, see how the machinery's working. I completely uh, I completely agree with that. And just to throw in my own observation there, I think that people frequently mishear understand with condone or or here humanize as synonymous with condone and agree with and to me those are completely different processes sometimes sometimes humanizing someone and sometimes understanding someone actually leads to a way darker view oh, yes. of them right yes. and that and to me it's actually scarier it is way scarier to really explore why someone believes what they believe because that makes me confront a level of human frailty and human ugliness that's just really really hard to face sometimes yeah um, no that's that's totally right and um the fact is because of the way that human beings are psychologically equipped we are all potentially vulnerable to adopting terrible ideas yes. now you are unlikely to adopt such ideas uh towards sexual minorities for obvious reasons but you are certainly capable and in fact you confessed as much you decided to renounce dehumanizing you know folks who on the far right who say and do toxic things mm. right so we're, we're all capable of it and so we all need to remain vigilant and just taking the cheap 
you know, attitude of the, they're bad, they're evil, they're monsters, whatever, that that doesn't help anybody. It might, you know, cultivate the warm glow of self-righteousness, but it doesn't help anything in the world. And surely if these things matter to us, we want to, as we Jews say, uh, heal the world. Mm. What you were just saying a minute ago about the the fear motivating the dehumanization, and it seems like fear in this context is really tied up with hatred. It's almost like the hatred and fear are the same thing. And would you say that that's accurate? I, I say that it's accurate, but it's a little simple. Okay. So I think hatred gets overused mm. in accounting for these things. Um, it gives us, you know, when we talk of hate speech and hate and all that kind of stuff, well, that's true uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are a lot of other things at play, like fear, like contempt, which is different than hate, or simply indifference to the well-being of others or even love the white supremacists they profess love for their race for instance right the fundamentalist christians profess love for christians right mm. so there's there's a big mix of attitudes and emotions here and once again i don't think i don't think it's it helps us to ignore the complexity of the problem Mm. No, that point is really well taken. So I will amend what I'm about to say, which is this reminds me of a piece that came out in Persuasion. I think it was a year or two. I think it was in 2021. It was called "The Hate and the the Hate at the Heart of Conspiracy Theory," and it was by David French, um, who I tend to have enormous disagreements with. But this was a great article mm. where he he said he was talking about QAnon, and he said. I might think that my car salesman is dishonest. I might think that he's lying to me. I might think that he is not treating me well as a customer. But in order to believe that he is raping and sacrificing children in his basement and consuming their adrenochrome, that takes hatred. But... As you just pointed out, it's a lot more complex than hatred. <laughs> there's there's more to that takes it takes fear and contempt and just that that whole complex soup of uh, of you know human responses. But it but there's um it seems like it's gesturing in the right direction where there's some it 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 isn't just you might not trust this person. Or you might think that maybe maybe they did you wrong, or maybe mm -hmm. they maybe they cheated you, or maybe they're dishonest. It's deeper than that. This is this is way yeah. deeper than that. They're embodiments of evil. Yeah, uh, I think when we get that, it's so it's not. Um, look, we can even talk about acts as evil acts, as the you know the extreme of moral disapproval is to characterize something as as evil. Yeah, but we're in another ballpark when we when we characterize people as evil. Yes, and uh, it seems to me that in doing that, one automatically must hate them. I mean, it's a package, right? If if someone considers you evil, they can't consider you evil without 
without hate mm. being mm-hmm. involved. So, you know, it, with QAnon, we have the delusional system, which characterizes, and it is a blatantly delusional system, which characterizes a whole bunch of human beings, although now they're increasingly being considered aliens from another world, uh, as uh, as evil. And so, you know, mm. hate certainly does play a role, but in concert with a whole bunch of other attitudes. Really quick question as well. Have you followed any of J.K. Rowling's comments? And I'm curious what your what your okay. He's shaking his no. head. <laughs> For people uh, no. who okay, I was just I'm I'm acquainted with what's been going on okay. to some extent, but I haven't really dug into it. Sure, I know. I was just going to to ask your analysis on that, but you know, I I will say that I think when. I've I've been thinking about the J.K. Rowling situation really deeply for like the past two years, and it takes me a long time to actually decide what I think about something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the case of J.K. Rowling, I I think that if ever someone does try to voice concerns about a minority group mm-hmm. um, or a minority within a minority, or you know. She's concerned about things like uh, threats to uh, women in sports or whatever the case may be. Whenever you do that, whenever people do that, they have to work extra hard to humanize the people involved. And I don't think that she did that. Um, So I'll just say, but it's just a conviction. uh, it's, It's just a realization like, oh, whenever we talk about any of this stuff, whenever we talk about minority groups, we have to work extra hard to express respect for their humanity because of the environment. Because no, of the political I, yeah. environment, and I think she failed to do that. So that's that's all I'll say there. That's the lesson oh, I, that I have gleaned from Rowling. <laughs> look, I, I I totally agree. You know the 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 meaning of what one says isn't just something that flows from the intentions of the speaker. It's also, I think, even more importantly, flows from how those that speech is consumed by others. And, and so it's very, very important to understand how one's comments are likely to be consumed by others. If, you know, and of course, as I said, I haven't followed this, so I don't even have a take on, you know, what might be going on in, in her heart. Sure. But it's, but I know what's going on in a lot of people's hearts. And especially when, it, it pertains to uh, minorities that are imperiled. We have to be very, very careful. Yes. So some of these issues like trans people in sports, we can have reasonable discussions about. There are people, there are, there are good faith disagreements on those things. But I'm totally in agreement with you that those discussions need to be very disciplined very yes you the speaker needs to understand if the potential for harm mm-hmm. and if if they can't do that they should refrain i completely agree with everything that you just said because i i think that so often 
we want our words. And by we, I mean people like me who are public communicators, who are thinking out loud in public. So often we want our words to just stand alone and we want our intentions to stand alone. And we get, I have to fight really hard to not get incredibly frustrated uh, when when people react in a way that I feel like is missing the point. And it's like, Mm. no, I have to remember people come preloaded with their, with, with the environment, with Mm. all of these experiences. And I have to take that into account when I communicate. Mm. Um, Otherwise it's not communicating. Otherwise it's not communicating. Exactly. So no, I completely agree with everything you just said. Let's talk about race. You okay. have another really fantastic article that you wrote with your wife. Is she your wife? She is. Nice. Um, your wife's name is Sabrina E. Smith, and mm-hmm. I might have to reach out to her and interview her because her work looks equally amazing. Oh, it is. <laughs> um, but you wrote this article in New Lines magazine for people who are curious. There will be a link in the show notes. And it's called The Trouble with Race and its many shades of deceit. And it is how education programs intended to foster diversity, equity, and inclusion do harm and why it's time for a radical shift. What is your basic argument here? Uh, and because it's a delicate argument, right? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to communicate this really well, but I think you did. And so tell us, tell us your basic argument here. So just as a prelude in the united states in particular the culture is so saturated with race uh, that it's very difficult often for people to hear what we're trying to say uh this you know flows very well from the conversation we just (laughs) had yes i was just thinking that yes so um Because of that, an article like ours is very difficult to get published. Um, We we want to, to, and in fact, we have written a a book proposal for a book called Relinquishing Race. Massive interest uh, from, uh, from publishers, major publishers, and then one by one, they pulled out. They didn't know what to do with it. Um, the article in New Lines began as an article for the Boston Review. And over the course of two years, they asked us to expand it, expand it, uh, address various concerns, and so on, and then dropped it. So I have huge admiration for New Lines in taking this on. Um, they've been just great. And apart from my gratitude towards them, it's a really good online magazine. It's fascinating articles. Um, Okay, so what's our basic argument? Well, here here are a couple of components to it. One component is, and this is something that is well known in many circles, race is a biologically vacuous notion. As far as biologists are concerned, almost all who seriously study this, races are not 
significant biological categories and not even coherent biological categories. Yes. Right? Um, that's a common view in the humanities and social sciences as well. Um, now, we argue that race, the racialization of people, that is the, um, the categorization of people racially, can never be ethically neutral. It can never be ethically neutral because the whole idea of race, if we look historically, and this is pretty mainstream stuff, the whole idea of race was created and deployed to legitimate harm. So let's imagine you're traveling to the west coast of Africa before the European and Arab slavers got to West Africa. And uh, and you say to someone, you know, you you folks are black. They look at they would look at you like you're nuts. <laughs> right. They said, no, no, no. First of all, chromatically, I'm brown, and uh, I'm not black. I'm Fulani, and that person over there that you claim is the same as me, no, they're Igbo, <laughs> and so on. So there were these diverse ethnic groups, and people's primary identity were with the ethnic groups. Ethnic groups are cultural groups. Nowadays, the term ethnicity is often used as a euphemism for race, but properly speaking, it's a cultural context. So for instance, the category African-American is an ethnic group. Okay, It's an ethnic category. It's not a racial category, although it's often abused as such. So, you know, the the, the, the slavers come in and they invent blackness. And with that, of course, comes the invention of whiteness mm. because racialization is always sort of reciprocal. And blackness, and this is quite explicit uh, amongst the Arabs, by the way, equals slave. Mm. To, to say that someone was black in that era was just to say that they're enslavable. This is how race has worked incessantly. So the idea here is the idea which we argue for is that racism isn't something detachable from race. Like we can't just clean it up. Racism is part of what it is to think racially, whether you know it or not. And intentionally or not, to promote race, then, is to promote the white supremacist project. And that doesn't, that this is an objective thing, right? So it doesn't matter what people's intentions are. Some people, you know, the, the enemies of justice and equality promote race in an overtly racist way. But there are plenty of comrades, in, you know, on the, on the path to securing truth and justice, who also promote race. And in doing so, they are promoting this toxic, dangerous, dangerous idea with no scientific justification, and which has frankly never done anything good. It's, it's legitimated poverty, enslavement, genocide, the works, the, you know, the worst things that people have done to, to one another. So insofar as DEI efforts 
diversity, equity, Power. and inclusion for people yes, who, thank who you. Thank are you following the, that acronym. Yes. 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 I, I'm a sworn enemy of acronyms, but that's one that, I, that rolls <laughs> off my tongue very easily. People yes. in that in that area who who with the best of intentions often um celebrate race are going in the wrong direction in our view. We should be concentrating on destabilizing race, not shoring it up. And that is perfectly compatible with with combating racism. In fact, it's more compatible with, in our view, combating racism than than the alternative is. It's such a relief to actually talk about this because for like the past, I don't know, three, four years, really I started thinking about this like everyone else in 2020 Mm. when we were all, you know, locked up in isolation and uh, watching the, uh, watched the murder of George Floyd. And there was a lot of conversation about race going on. And, you know, I, I committed myself publicly, kind of performatively, I will confess to, you know, okay, I'm going to to do the anti-racist work. And so I delved into the literature. I read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I read uh, So You Want to Talk About Race by, I forget her name. I read White Fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, I read all the books. I read the books. I mm-hmm. listened to the podcasts. I And I grew consistently more uncomfortable because I didn't understand how we can acknowledge that race is a harmful construct. I, I, I couldn't grasp how race is a harmful, harmful construct. And yet we're talking about it more than we ever have in a way that reifies it, in a way that makes it real. And as if the one drop rule still applies. And I don't get that. I don't understand how that works. And so like, listen, you know, reading a lot of these people and talking to a lot of these people uh, and just being like, I, I'm right there with you in acknowledging the problem. Like, Absolutely. The race this country has an absolutely atrocious and unfathomable problem with racism in the past. You know, we it, it has this horrific racist legacy, and we do have to confront that and we do have to never forget that. But how is the solution to just obsess more about race when it seems to me that the answer is race, this color of someone's skin should be as insignificant as the color of someone's hair or the color of their eyes. And so I don't understand. I just don't understand. And actually I, and I'm a firm believer in the idea that the be- the the most successful human rights movements are predicated on focusing on the two furthest extremes of human identity on one extreme is our universal identity as human beings and we have that shared human experience yeah. 
And so really appealing to that shared humanity that works, that wins, that, that, that is incredibly powerful. And then on the other hand, focusing on, we are individuals that per, you know, someone Mm -hmm. is an individual with their own likes and their own dislikes, their own interior experience, their own interests, their own history. And then in the middle, there's that whole spectrum of nationality, gender, race, culture, all of that sexual orientation, all of that stuff. And it's really, it's so important. All of that is really important. All of that Mm -hmm. is really beautiful and really meaningful and really all of, but if it isn't predicated in my mind, if it isn't predicated on that foundational bedrock of first and foremost, someone is an individual and first and foremost, we are all human beings. Then, and let me know what you think about this. My worry, then, is that if we focus on, on the middle stuff while neglecting those two most important extremes of identity—extreme is the wrong word—the two most ic- important foundations of identity, mm-hmm. it enhances our human fear response. It can enhance our unhealthy obsession with identity. Mm-hmm. And so if we if we talk about race without emphasizing, if we talk about the color of our skin without emphasizing that we are human together first and foremost, we are we are the same. Mm-hmm. We are human beings and we are individuals. Then, then racism is just going to reify. It's just going to reemerge. Am I wrong about this? No, no. I, I look. You're preaching to the choir. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a committed humanist. Human. Yes, same. Now, now, look. So, race, I think, is a particularly toxic category, both because of its history, its horrendous history, uh, but also because you, see, racial thinking actually goes be well beyond. Uh, skin color. Uh, after all, you and I don't have the same skin color. I'm looking at you on the screen. I'm I'm kind of pinkish, <laughs> and, and you're a little bit more towards orangey brownie. Yep, orangey brownie. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, first, so these are these aren't genuinely uniform color categories. But what race tends to do is to homogenize people, right? As soon as you classify people racially, you homogenize them. Uh, And appearance is generally seen, I think, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, not what makes a person a member of a race, but rather it's symptomatic, supposedly, of something deeper. It's supposed to be symptomatic of, of some fundamental difference. And that just gets hierarchicalized. Like, I mean that's give some give some examples of how that manifests today where race isn't just the color of our skin it is a manifestation of something deeper more fundamental about yeah. a human being. It's almost like a spiritual thing. It's almost like it's almost like you have a racialized soul. Yeah, almost. actually that's the in Hitler's very last statement on on race that he dictated to uh, Martin Bormann, he said as much. He said the Jews are a spiritual race, right? 
So this this comes back to essentialism, right? So there's the idea that deep down, deep down, those folks there are different from we folks here. We essentialize ourselves, we essentialize them. Um, and in doing so, typically place ourselves above them because that's the driving force of the whole race project, right? To, to, to oppress. Um, so where did I want to go with it? So there are many, many illustrations of this. Um, let me give two, two that I gave in the article. So um, I, in the article, Sabrina and I, and I'm going to come back to Sabrina in a minute, uh, we talk about our conversations with our students because we both teach race. Me, because it's a particular, and has been for a long time, research interest. Her, because as someone racialized as Black, it's kind of thrust on her right there there's there's kind of an intellectual ghetto that you get pushed into if you're an academic who's racialized as black um so you know it asks the student okay you've been talking about race what is it and they'll say oh race is the color the skin color and then i said well look let's let's consider the nazis so my jewish grandmother is from romania she had skin paler than anyone in this room. She had brilliant blonde hair, long blonde hair, and the bluest of blue eyes. But to the Nazi mind, she was a subhuman Jew. And for the Nazis, and most Americans do not understand this, category Jew is a racial category. It's not a religious category. Um, you could convert to Christianity and you're still a Jew. So it actually doesn't work with this paradigmatic case, which if you go to, say, Central or Eastern Europe, the Jew is the par paradigmatic racialized person. The United States has had a different kind of history. Um, so the I think in the United States, it's basically black and white. That's the dichotomy in Eastern Europe. It's basically Jew and Gentile or, or, or uh, Roma and non-Roma. Okay, so that's example number one. The, the, the appearance thing just doesn't work <laughs> to, if we act, look at actual cases. Second, what about passing? So I give the example of Homer Plessy, the, um, the defendant in Plessy versus Ferguson, which wrote into law the separate but ish, uh, equal uh, notion. Homer Plessy was visually indistinguishable from anyone who would be regarded by his fellow Louisiana citizens as white. His skin was, he had pale skin and straight hair and all, everything that comes with it. But he had a single uh, African grandparent. That was sufficient to make him black under the law. So this is, we're back to the wind dark rule. So appearance can be, can come apart from racial categorization. In fact, the prosecuting attorney admitted he couldn't see that Plessy was black, but he, he claimed he could smell that he was black. This, by the way, is very common with racialization, that the racialized group is supposed to have a distinctive and very 
unpleasant smell. In the Middle Ages, Jews were supposed to distinct like that. So, so the, the appearance thing doesn't work. The racial characterization pertains to an imagined deeper something that every member of the race is supposed to have and no non-member of the race is supposed to possess the in the in the jar psychological jargon the essence there's a racial essence that is supposed to be transmitted biologically from parents to offspring down the so-called bloodline which is of course sheer fantasy now so so that's that's really important um, you know, the basic philosophical question, I speak as a philosopher about anything, is like, what are we talking about? That's always the first stop. And are we talking about anything coherent in the case of race? No, we're not. It's an incoherent idea. Now, this is hard for Americans because race has played such a huge role, such a foundational role, is so sedimented into the foundations of American civilization, that it's hard for Americans to distance themselves from it. My spouse, who's also a philosopher, was born in Jamaica and raised in Jamaica. And back in the 70s, don't it's maybe a little bit different now, but back in the 70s, race was not a thing in, in Jamaica. I mean, terms like black and white would be used, but they didn't carry all this baggage. They were like saying tall or short, you know, blonde or brunette. They were ideologically innocent categorizations. And as she says, I only became black when I came to the United States. You know, I tried to explain it to her as having grown up in the Deep South. And it always seemed like an assault when people racialized her. She's written a paper on this called On Being Race Queer. So the idea of being race queer is not, it's not she's saying I'm white. She is saying she doesn't have a race. <laughs> she doesn't buy into it. Mm. it, it it's like Thomas Chatterton Williams, where yeah. I don't, if you're familiar with him, yeah, mm -hmm. he's, uh, I've I've listened to a ton of interviews with him, and he he talks about this experience where he marries a white French woman, and they have yeah. kids, and their kids yeah. come out blonde, white, yeah. Yeah. and that just kind of deconstructs his identity as a black man because it and yeah. you know when he sees his blonde-haired, blue-eyed white kids, yeah. he's like, oh, this is made up. This yeah. this is fake. This thing, yeah. the, this emphasis that we put on race, mm -hmm. it's stupid. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So so when Sabrina gives talks on this, and you have to understand, phenotypically, like her face is like a map of West Africa, right? There's there's no mistaking where many of her ancestors are from. But she'll look dead at the audience and say, I'm not black. Mm. You think I'm trying to be cute, don't you? No, I am not black black with a capital b as in like black as a deep identity as black as an identity rather than as just a mere passing description but she's she's not black in either sense okay. i mean right. if it's a passing description she's brown then it's she's... incorrect yes it's inaccurate <laughs> <laughs> so she's brown and i'm beige right yes. she's not black i'm not white. i i loved the i loved the disc so 
So that's okay. So that's a that's a fascinating point. Even the words black and white aren't actually descriptions. If we were to say, if we were to actually go with descriptions, then they would be descriptions. That's right. But they so, aren't. They're no, they're, they're not. I, they're, they're identities. They aren't even yes. descriptions. Fair that enough. is fascinating. And so we can add another layer to that. So so why? How how did these categories come to be used? Well, in Euro-American civilization, and I presume in other places of the world as well, but I don't like to talk about things I don't know anything about. Black and white have powerful symbolic significance. It's evil and good, unclean and clean, and so on. So in characterizing groups of people in this imagined colorway, uh, that brings a whole lot of symbolic significance to bear on that because of that deep tradition of the, you know, the meaning of, of black and white. There were medieval examples, just by, by the way, of uh, a black, say, Muslim converting to Christianity. And after the conversion, God performs a miracle and turns them white. I mean, that speaks volumes. It does. Yeah. You know, I, so I'm also a meditator, and people will know this about me who listen to the show. And I feel like meditation has been one of the biggest eye openers for me hmm. in terms of this, especially the, the kind of meditation I practice. So I practice like non dual meditation. Um, kind of derived from the Dzogchen tradition. And I also, um, you know, practice the headless way from Richard, from, from, um, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember his name right now. Um, but you know, various, various, um, meditation practices that are kind of about revealing the fundamental illusoriness of identity hmm. that not that it doesn't not not that we don't experience it, but that when we really put it under examination, it vanishes. It mm -hmm. the the closer we look at it, the more unreal it becomes. Even though we might live as if we have this, mm -hmm. um, you know, autonomous locus or center of consciousness that has a mm -hmm. self and an identity and and is the meditator, is the thinker, is the. But when we really examine that closely that just kind of breaks down and and dissipates and is proven to be an illusion. And one morning when I was meditating, when I was doing my my morning meditation, I just had this realization of there's no such thing as a as gay consciousness. There's just my consciousness. It isn't a gay consciousness. There I, there's there's just this experience. I yeah. just, I am, my consciousness, my, which is, it's just this open arena within which thoughts, within physical sensations, within sight, feeling, thought, intuition, it's just appearing. It's mm. just emerging. And that fundamental experience of one's own consciousness, it's, it's like, 
it's like a knowing light. It's like knowing awareness. It's like, and I know I'm resorting to very weird supernatural terms here, and I don't mean to. I'm, mm-hmm. I am myself an atheist, but I don't know how else to describe it. As in, I understand. It's, yeah. it's, it's this, but it has no identity. And so to say yeah. that it has, to say that there is a gay consciousness is in me, in me, that my, that my conscious experience, the most fundamental thing about me, the way I experience the world, maybe that's, maybe that's a misnomer. Maybe it isn't right to say that that is the most fundamental thing about me, but it's the most fundamental part of how I experience the world is, Mm. it's just this open awareness. There's nothing gay about that. Mm -mm. And, and then I, I just had this realization of there's no black consciousness. There's no white consciousness. There's no Mm. trans consciousness. There's no Latino consciousness. There's just, we, at the end of the day, at the base level, we have this, it's the same kind of consciousness. It's human. It is human consciousness. And it was, it's almost, it's a, it was almost a religious experience. It was almost like this, 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 kind of religious metaphysical experience that meditation can often yield of, oh, we really are the same. And these boundaries really are stupid and arbitrary. These boundaries really are useless. There's, I don't need to, you know, deepen a meditation practice. It makes zero sense to even identify with my own face to identify with (laughs) this look with this Mm -hmm. with this face that i'm seeing on screen right now that's something sam harris says is that it's it's use you know it makes as much sense to it makes a very little sense to uh, to even identify with one's own face that they see in the mirror you know that isn't an endorsement of other Mm -hmm. things sam harris has said by the way i I, of course (laughs) (laughs) um uh, that's a another complex conversation, but um, and then, so so yes yes. Can go I on. add to that? Yes, so, please. Because what you said harkens back to the the two foundational uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? The two fa- I'll take a shortcut. The two foundational things, which is humanness and individuals right so that's that's the humanist side of it right there's yeah, just absolutely notice that when we fall into the identity trap we lose our individuality yes right? we we are homogenized we're thought to be all the same as others who are um, that come under the umbrella. And that does violence to reality. You know, one of the great lessons of Darwin is that variation is the norm. We are all of us different. Um, and a lot of people seem to have difficulty with that, and difficulty with difference. Frankly, I love being around people who are different than me. It's very stimulating. Yeah, it's just that whenever you get to know someone well, that difference becomes apparent. That's one of the exciting things about about love, right? And it you, isn't you, 
and it isn't on the level of race. It's on the level of no. the individual. And that's that's, that's what right. that's what always stands out to me, by the way. So I, I work in a in a pretty diverse setting. And so I work with trans people and I work with farm kids who are mm. who, you know, come in from the, you know, come in from the family farm and is their first job. And they don't know the first thing about anyone who isn't like them. And then I work yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with black people and mm-hmm. Latino people and so on. And. All of that vanishes, mm-hmm. and what emerges is their unique individualness that is unique to them and not mm-hmm. unique to their identity as yeah. as a black person, trans person. It's like that stuff disappears. Yeah. That yeah. just fades into the background. It doesn't disappear, yeah. but it fades into the background, and what comes into the forefront is their individual human nature, their, their individual personhood. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I, that's my experience as well. And again, one of the ironies and tragedies, we come back to race for, but it, this also is pertinent. I think gender works differently than race, but it's pertinent to gender too. Um, these identities, no matter what anyone says, are not freely chosen. They've been thrust on us by by ideological forces that are um, immensely powerful and immensely deeply rooted in our civilization. So one of the ironies is many of the people who are most have been most harmed by these forms of categorization hold on to them most tenaciously. And, and experience efforts to undermine their reality as an assault on something precious to them. And I can understand this because, you know, you grow up, say, in the United States with respect to race, it's a highly racialized society. You grow up having an identity as a small child fashioned around these, these notions. So it becomes very central, right? And, and that's one reason why it's psychologically difficult, certainly for Americans, to relinquish these things. Now, you talk to people from abroad, and they come here, and they don't have, like Sabrina, right? She, When she said, I turned, became Black when I came to the United States, she didn't, didn't mean she was buying into it. Which, what it meant was that was the, the mirror that the distorting mirror that people held up to her, right? Blackness was ascribed to her, to use her preferred language, but she never subscribed to it. And, you know, that's a real, that's a hard one. And if if we're going to get over this stuff, I think it's going to take a long time. But all of us, all of us can push back. I'm not, I don't racialize anyone. I don't racialize myself. Obviously, out of politeness, if someone wants to be um, characterized as black, okay. I mean, that's out of politeness. That's just the decent thing to do, to to fall in with how they see their identity. Um, but it shouldn't be a knee-jerk thing, it, which reminds me of my kid uh, who is queer, and who says the only way to be consistently queer is for all pronouns to be acceptable. 
I love that. And, you know, reading your article, it reminded me of my closest friends here in town and they're a family. Um, they're very, very dear to me. They're like my second family. They're all Italian. And, you know, and so, you know, they're from Sicily, they're darker skin, brown eyed, mm. black hair. Yeah. But it it never occurred to me to to ever think of them in a categorical or ontological sense as Italian. They're just mm -hmm. the Salamonies. They're their yeah. son is my best friend. Their, mm -hmm. their, uh, his parents, you know, have me over for Christmas. Like I, it, like their their son Dante is is he's just my best friend. He's this straight mm -hmm. bro, Jim bro, and I'm his <laughs> gay yeah. best friend. And it's just never occurred to us to define me as the gay friend to define him as the yeah. Italian friend or they're just the Salamonies and he's just Dante but mm -hmm. 100 years ago that would not have been the case at all Italian no. was a very specific racial group yes. and it seems mm. desirable to me to uh, to to make these categories arbitrary but I can hear Again, I can hear a critic. Do you have a thought on on that, by the way? Do you have a response mm -hmm. to, to what I just yeah. said? Yeah. So we can reject these categorical accounts of human beings. And there's really nothing lost. Right. So that to not see them as categorically Italian, as having some kind of deep Italianness in there, doesn't mean that you have to reject that they've had a certain heritage, um, that they have a certain appearance. They're Americans of Sicilian appearance, um, that, that perhaps there are certain sensibilities and mannerisms which have come down the historical pike. All that can stay. That's not harmful. That's beautiful. That's great. Um, you know, I people will ask what I am. I say I'm uh, uh, an ethnically Ashkenazi Jewish American, right? But there are a lot of forces, again, operating against this. These stupid ads on TV for 23andMe and so on, where people believe that their identities are encoded in their genes and will say things like, you know, my great great grandfather was French. Now I know why I like French food. <laughs> they, they, they do. People are yeah. looking for these essences. That's just that's like supernat. That's like superstition. That's like supernatural. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's right. It is. It is. It's it's absurd, and I think it's harmful. Yeah, I agree. I can hear an objection to this though, which is okay. that, and I think I've read this among some some anti-racist authors in particular, where they push back against what they see as uh, the erasing, uh, 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 as uh, how do I say this, toxic universalism, a, a sort of universalism mm -hmm. that wipes away difference. And so they really push back against the phrases like, I don't see race. 
uh, they they think that phrases like that are really destructive in part because it helps to make invisible the ways that oppression might continue. And then you mm-hmm. have people, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, critical race theory. Uh, uh, critical race theory writer. He's one of the kind of the founders of the subject where he he says that essentially racism will always exist it's just a matter of what shape it's taking on and to and to ignore race uh, let's just leave it there i'm i'm going to butcher, okay. i'm just i'm going to butcher yeah. his argument so i won't i won't try right. to repeat it but there is this assumption that to universalize is to allow racism to continue. Yeah, do, do you know that? The, do you know the kind of thing that I'm referring to? Oh, no, sure, sure, sure. And I, th- I think it's a, it's a, an awful argument. Okay. Um, it, it's an awful argument because, look, I don't see race because race is a fiction. I see people's appearance for sure. And I see from their appearance how they're likely to be racialized, that is regarded as belonging to a race in a society like our own. But I do not see race. Nobody sees race. The most strident advocates of this point of view do not see race. They may be deluded that they think they do, but they don't. Hmm. You can't see something that isn't there. Um, So to, to reject race is not to reject facts about how people are regarded by the society at large, facts about their historical trajectory, facts about injustices meted out to them, and so on. You don't need race for any of that stuff. Um, You just need to understand that there has been this uh, just incredibly toxic delusion about different kinds of people which which has wrecked lives and continues to wreck lives. Um, so the analogy that uh, is often used in the literature, Sabrina and I repeat it in the article, but was introduced in the literature by a philosopher named Kwame Anthony Appiah, who has a view similar to our own, um, is witches. So... W-I-T-A, witch, witch yeah. as in a witch. Okay, witches, got it. And, you know, the good old-fashioned witches, not not Wicca, which is a fairly recent invention, but, you know, 15th century witches. Uh, so these were women, mostly women, about a quarter of the victims of the worst persecu- witch persecution were men, uh, who were accused of having magical powers, which they used to malevolent ends, of flying off through the air once a month to consort with the devil who appeared in the form of a large black cat, etc., etc., etc. Now, people believed in witches then. Does that mean that witches existed? Well, of course not. And if we were compa- campaigning for justice for, say, the descendants of witches, it would be absurd. It would run counter to anything desirable to say, yeah, they were, they were really witches, and you're witches too, because you've... you've you descended from witches. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right you've got right. the witch essence. 
that's garbage. And I, I think um, beliefs about race are no more credible than that. It's just that they're very pervasive in our society, but it's, it's equally nuts. And in fact, if we were wanting to secure rights and protections for those accused of being witches, we certainly do not want to make the move of saying they are witches. We want to make the move of saying, no, there aren't any witches. You can't see witchiness because it doesn't exist. But what you certainly can see is injustice and hatred and contempt meted out to people so regarded. Mm. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I so appreciate it. And for people who might want to follow up on your work, where can they do that? They can do it in two ways. They can go to my um, my Substack, which is called Dehumanization Matters. It's free subscription. And every time I get a chance, I generally uh, put things up depending on what's relevant in the news. So I might go three weeks with nothing. I might have several in one week. Depends on what's happening in the world. Sure. So that's Dehumanization Matters. Uh, I'd love to to hear from y'all. And there's a chat function so we can talk. And they can go to my website, www.davidlivingstonsmith.com. And there you can read about my books. I think I think I haven't updated in a long time, but there are links to videos of talks and podcast discussions like this one. Um, Fantastic. And people should... They're curious. They can write to me. I mean, I'm not a prima donna. And you, by the way, Stephen, are just a wonderful conversation partner. I've felt so carefree talking to you. And I'm that's glad down to, to hear you. That. that means a lot. Thank you so much. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>